Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 9.8, Pre-Colonial African Learning. Hello, and welcome back to Musings on History in the Ancient Africa series. Last episode, I talked about the economy, social structures, and armies of pre-colonial Africa. And this episode, I'll be talking about systems of learning in pre-colonial Africa. Chapter one, prehistoric learning. As Africa is humanity's ancestral home, it stands to reason that the continent is also the home of ancestral learning or the ancestral home of human learning, rather. Sorry, it's early. Prehistoric humans and our evolutionary predecessors were just as interested in the world around them as we are today, and they had many methods for doing things like tracking time, marking possessions, expressing feelings, and performing rituals. The Labombo bone is a bone tool made from the fibula of a baboon with incised markings on it. It was discovered in the Labombo Mountains located between South Africa and Eswatini. Changes in the section of the notches indicate the use of different cutting edges, which the bones discoverer, archaeologist Peter Beaumont, describes as evidence, or views as evidence rather, for the notches having been made during participation in rituals. The Labombo bone is between 44,200 and 43,000 years old, according to radiocarbon dating. According to the Universal Book of Mathematics, the Labombo Bones 29 notches suggest it may have been used as a lunar phase counter, in which case African women may have been the first mathematicians because keeping track of menstrual cycles requires a lunar calendar. However, the bone is broken at one end, so the 29 notches may or may not be the total number. Another notched bone is the Ishango bone, which was discovered at the fisherman settlement of Ishango in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It was also used as a bone tool and possible mathematical device that dates back to the upper Paleolithic era. The curved bone is dark brown in color, about 10 centimeters in length, and features a sharp piece of quartz fixed to the end, perhaps for engraving. Because the bone has been narrowed, scraped, polished, and engraved to a certain extent, it's no longer possible to determine what animal the bone belonged to, although the size of it suggests a large mammal, possibly a primate. The ordered engravings on the Ashango bone have led many to speculate the meaning behind these marks, including interpretations like mathematical significance or astrological relevance. It's thought by some to be a tally stick as it features a series of what have been interpreted as tally marks carved in the three columns running the length of the tool. But it's also been suggested that the scratches might have been to create a better grip on the handle or for some other non-mathematical reason. Others argue that the marks on the object are non-random and that it was likely a kind of counting tool and used to perform simple mathematical procedures. Other speculations include the engravings on the bone serving as a lunar calendar. Wondervert Cave is an archaeological site formed originally as an ancient solution cavity in the Dolomite rocks of the Kuraman Hills, situated between Daniel Skeel and Kuraman in the northern Cape province of South Africa. 
The site has been studied and excavated by archaeologists since the 1940s, and the research it has yielded has generated very important insights into human history in Southern Africa. There's evidence of controlled fires within the Wonderford Caves and rock art in the form of parental paintings suggesting that the caves were used by ancient Africans for ritual purposes. The paleoarchaeologists Cezanne and Horowitz refer to the introduction of manuparts, which are unmodified natural stones with special sensory properties that are more than 180,000 years old. And the deep interior of the cave is characterized by singular acoustic and visual qualities. They argue that the site provides a unique and extensive diachronic record of milestones in the development of symbolic behavior and evidence to support the position that elements of symbolic behavior emerge long before the dispersal of modern humans out of Africa. What this means is that ancient Africans used cave paintings for ritual purposes before they migrated out of Africa, and this is called proto-writing. Also in South Africa, the Deep Hoof Rock Shelter is a rock shelter in Western Cape, South Africa, in which has been found some of the earliest evidence of the human use of symbols in the form of patterns engraved on ostrich eggshell water containers. These are even older than some of the Wonderwork cave paintings dating around 60,000 years ago. The symbolic patterns consist of lines crossed at right angles or oblique angles by hatching. It has been suggested that by the repetition of this motif, early humans were trying to communicate with one another. The variety and volume of the symbol suggests that perhaps they were trying to express the identity of the individual or the group. The engravings are found on ostrich eggshells that were used as water containers. Some of the recovered shells had carvings dug out for spouts, while others had holes drilled in them, possibly to be strung up into a canteen to carry water. The carvings are delicate and intricate with repeating patterns. So not only is Africa home to the first writing systems, the continent is also home to the invention of the water bottle. And ancient Africans didn't want random people drinking from their ostrich shell water bottles, so they labeled them. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Chapter two, indigenous African scripts. Symbols soon gave way to scripts. The Proto-Saharan script is the oldest writing script in Africa, and steles with the script have been found in the area of Nubia, near the Karga Oasis, dating back to 5000 BC. Proto-Saharan scripts share some similarities to later scripts like Tifana and Vi. In North Africa, the oldest scripts are Egyptian hieroglyphic scripts like Nadu Meter, Kemetic, Demotic, and Hierotic, Thinite, and Lyrical Berber, which was introduced during the Libyan dynasties in Pharaonic Egypt. The ancient Egyptians called their hieroglyphic script Midwit Neter or Medunater, God's words. The word hieroglyph comes from the Greek heros, which means sacred, and glypho, inscriptions. And it was first used by Clement of Alexandria circa 200 AD. The hieroglyphic script was confined mainly to formal inscriptions on the walls of temples and tombs. Ancient Egyptian hieratic writing was a simplified form of the hieroglyphics used for day-to-day business and administrative and scientific documents throughout the dynastic history of both Kemet and Kush, which was around 3200 BC to 600 AD. Some linguists have also shown similarities between hieratic and the alphabetic Proto-Saharan writing. The term demotic was used by Greek writer-historian Herodotus from 484 to 425 BC to distinguish it from the Herodic script. 
Whereas Herodic connotes priestly, the term demotic is derived from the Greek word demos, which means common people. The Demotic script is the only ancient Egyptian script that was used by just about every Egyptian. It is potentially the world's first cursive or flowing script and was mostly confined to pottery and papyri. The Demotic script was introduced by Egypt's 25th dynasty, which had Cushitic origins. In West Africa, the Sibidi script is an ancient script used to write various languages in West Central Africa. Most notably used by the Ugwakima and Ijagam or Ikoi people of Nigeria and Cameroon, Sibidi is also used by the nearby Ebe, Ifik, Ibibio, Igbo, and Uyanga people. The Sibidi script of symbols is independent of Roman, Latin, or Arabic influence and is believed by some scholars to date back to 5000 BC, but the oldest archaeological evidence ever found, which were monoliths in Ecom, Nigeria, date back to 2000 BC. Similar to the Kemetic Medunatere, Isbidi is a system of standardized pictographs. In fact, both Sibidi and the Egyptian hieroglyphs share several of the same characters. Sibidi was divided into sacred and public versions. However, Western education and Christian indoctrination drastically reduced the number of Sibidi literate people, leaving the secret society version as the last surviving form of the symbols. Still, Sibidi was transported to Cuba and Haiti via the Atlantic slave trade, where Anawafuana or Anafuana and Veve symbols are derived from the West African Sibidi script. Sometimes, though, scripts evolved when people speak a language for which the script has no phonetics. This is the case of Ajami, an Arabic-derived script used for writing African languages, particularly those of Mande, Haza, and Swahili, although many other African languages are also written using the script, including Yoruba, Moray, and Pular. Since many African languages include phonetic sounds and systems not found in the Arabic language, an adapted Arabic script is used to transcribe those sounds not normally found in Arabic. The West African Haza language is an example of a language written using Ajami, especially during the pre-colonial period when Quranic schools taught Muslim children Arabic and by extension Ajami. Following Western colonization, a Latin orthography for Haza was adopted and the Ajami script declined in popularity. Ajami remains in widespread use among Islamic circles, but exists in diagraphia among the broader populace. Ajami is used ceremonially and for specific purposes, such as for local herbal preparations in the Jula language. Digraphia and sociolinguistics is when more than one writing system is used for the same language, like when you see someone typing in Arabic using the Latin alphabet and they add like the letter three or the, I'm sorry, the number three or seven in the spelling of a word. That's an example of synchronic digraphia because Arabic is written using both the standard Arabic script and the Latin script. Whereas diachronic digraphia or sequential digraphia is the replacement of one writing system by another for a particular language. Boko is a Latin script alphabet used to write the Haza language. The first Boko alphabet was devised by Europeans in the early 19th century and developed in the early 20th century by the British and French colonial authorities. It was made the official Haza alphabet in 1930, and since the 1950s, Boko has been the main alphabet for Haza. Ajami is now only used in Islamic schools and for Islamic literature. Since the 1980s, Nigerian Boko has been based on the Pan-Nigerian alphabet, which is a set of 33 Latin letters standardized by the National Language Center of Nigeria in the 1980s. 
It is intended to be sufficient to write all the languages of Nigeria without using digraphs. Chapter 3, Mathematics and Medicine One way that Africans have demonstrated mathematical skill over the centuries is through games. The Mancala games are a family of two-player turn-based strategy board games played with small stones, beads, or seeds, and rolls of holes or pits in the earth, a board, or other playing surface. The objective of the game is to capture all or some set of the opponent's pieces. Versions of the game date back past the 3rd century BC, and it is among the oldest known games to still be widely played today. In Africa, some of the most popular variations of Mankala are Ayoyo, played by the Yoruba people in Nigeria, Gebeta, played in Sudan, Ethiopia, and Eritrea, Baolakiswahili, yeah, played in most of East Africa, including Kenya, Tanzania, Comoros, Malawi, as well as some areas of DR Congo and Burundi, Igisoro, played in Rwanda, Lamlameta, played in Ethiopia, Oponayo, played among the Yoruba of Nigeria, Oware, played, um, originally played among the Ashanti, but played worldwide with those close variants played throughout West Africa and in the Caribbean, and Vuela, played by the Lukasi people distributed between Southern Angola, Northeast Namibia, and Zambia. They differ from other Mancala types in that the player's store is included in the placing of the seeds. The most common type has seven holes for each player in addition to the player's store holes. This version has identical rules throughout its range, but there are also numerous variations with the number of holes and rules by region. Sometimes more than one version can be played in a single locality. According to Dr. Constance Hilliard's Intellectual Traditions of Pre-Colonial Africa, the traditional mathematics among the Yoruba peoples of Nigeria was based on a vegesimal system of numeration. That is, the base of computation was the number 20, unlike the decimal system of 10, which has evolved in the West. This Yoruba system relied heavily on, subtract on subtraction functions, such as expressing the number 95 as 20 times 5 minus 5. Like Yoruba mathematics systems, Igbo mathematics is also a vegesimal number system with a base of 20. The Igbo number system is advanced because it has number names for all the numbers within its system, although the numerals are not all symbolized. Outside its general and conventional use, the Igbo numbers do have social and religious implied meanings, which influence the use of the numbers and influence people. The cultural influence of this number system, to a large extent, determined its utility and application in mathematical principles and later in its outcome in human development. Some humanistic aspects have been implicated in recent studies where Igbo mathematics can be applied in such areas as business enterprise, governance, and science and technology, where the application potential of indigenous numerical systems and mathematical expressions and daily usage in science can be harnessed for greater benefits. Using indigenous math systems in modern computer science can give a larger scope to algorithmic and artificial learning and greatly increase the diversity of outcomes in quantum computing. In the arena of medicine, African traditional medicine goes well beyond simple herb lore, although there is nothing wrong with herbal medicine. In Southwest DR Congo, the Yaka people live among DRC's border with Angola. The Yaka are a matrilineal subsistence agricultural society that is largely decentralized, 
but they're renowned for their herbal-based medicinal therapies, in particular, the Yaka people's skill in midwifery and boosting female fertility is well known throughout Central Africa, and there's evidence of them being the first in Africa to successfully practice, what do you call that, uh, C-sections. The Kamba people of Kenya and Tanzania also have an accumulated knowledge of herbal medicine. Kamba herbalists have treated a wide range of diseases from peptic ulcers to edemas, sexually transmitted infections like syphilis and gonorrhea, epilepsy, and snake bites using local plants. They've also made a local anesthetic form, uh, anesthetic from the leaves and stems of the Isangosia and Isoambububu trees by warming them over a fire until a white latex substance can be squeezed out and applied topically to the areas to be numbed. The numbness lasts for up to three hours and is similar in efficacy to hospital grade anesthesias. The centralization of public health in Africa has its roots in medieval Ethiopia. In the late 11th century, during the transition from the Agaw-led Zagwe dynasty to the Amhara-led Solomonic dynasty, the Hamanot healers had long been organized into guilds according to their practice, where they standardized their methodologies and trained apprentices. Veterinarians, midwives, dentists, and doctors were enticed to remain in the kingdom rather than leave for Egypt or the near, nearby Dalak and Abuyid Sultanates when the first king of the Solomonic dynasty, Yakuno Amlak, offered these professionals, most of whom had had high rank in the Zagwe dynasty, titles, land, and lands, and by giving their professional guilds a state subsidy so that they could continue to train apprentices, leading to the establishment of Africa's first state-run and organized public health service. Thus, Ethiopia is the only country in Africa that did not have to establish an independent health service after colonization, one, because it was never fully colonized, and two, because it had had a public health service since 1270 AD. Fun fact, in the 1960s and 70s, when many African countries gained their independence and were establishing their own public health services and hospitals, Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie I organized a mission in conjunction with the Ethiopian State Church to send Ethiopian medical professionals to different African countries to help them train their own doctors, nurses, and dentists. Countries like Haiti also did this, particularly in the DRC. DRC's first prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, took up Haile Selassie's offer and was thus, and this was one of the main reasons, why one of many reasons, why the governments of Belgium, France, the UK, and the US facilitated Lumumba's execution in January 1961 and assisted in Emperor Haile Selassie's overthrow in 1974. Now, if you're wondering why these Western governments didn't also have Haile Selassie killed, according to some declassified State Department documents, some of the officials didn't see the point of having him killed since they knew he had advanced prostate cancer, while others feared a global uprising across the African diaspora if he were to die of anything other than natural causes because Emperor Selassie had long been a symbol of Black resistance and sovereignty. Chapter 4, African Centers of Learning One of the pillars of pre-colonial African education was the madrasa. Madrasa is the Arabic word for any type of educational institution, whether it be for elementary instruction or higher learning. Madrasa in Arabic is also referred to for institutions for religious study and secular study, regardless of what religion it is. Outside of the Muslim world, the word usually refers to a specific type of religious school or college for the study 
of the religion of Islam, even though this may not be the only subject studied. Basically, non-Muslims regularly, routinely, and with great purpose misuse the word madrasa, giving it a narrower definition than it has in the Arabic-speaking world. This is important to note because there is some dispute about whether or not the University of Al-Qarawin, founded in 857 AD by the Tunisian Fatima al-Thiri, should be called the world's first university because, as some historians see it, universities are a European invention and are somehow radically different from a madrasa. They claim that their claim is that universities do not have a religious focus to the subjects studied there, unlike what they perceive madrasas to do. In their perspective, the world's first university should be the University of Bologna, which was founded in 1088 AD by a group of foreign students in Bologna who hired scholars from the city's pre-existing lay and ecclesiastical schools to teach them subjects such as liberal arts, notarial law, theology, and ars dictaminis, which is scrivenry. The university is historically notable for teaching canon and civil law, and in 1477, when Pope Sixtus IV issued a papal bull authorizing the creation of Uppsala University in Sweden, the bull specified that the new university would have the same freedoms and privileges as the University of Bologna, including the right of Uppsala to establish the four traditional faculties of theology, law, canon, and Roman law, medicine, and philosophy. Now, all of these subjects were taught at Al-Qarawiyan as well, but instead of canon and civil law, it was Islamic jurisprudence and primary sources of the Maliki Sharia tradition. From its inception, Bologna also had a distinctly Catholic flavor to all of the subjects taught there, and the students and teachers became subject to ecclesiastic rather than civil law after Holy Roman Emperor Frederick I Barbarossa granted them a charter in 1158. So why, dear listeners, do some historians debate Al-Qarawiyan's distinction on the grounds of religiosity as though there was any place in medieval European society that was not also entirely grounded in Catholicism and later Protestantism. I'll leave you to ponder that, but I do want to add that neither Al-Qarawiyan nor University of Bologna was built by a religious authority, but both were sanctioned by religious authorities and all the oldest universities in Europe after Bologna, including Oxford and Cambridge, were built by the Catholic Church and the students and staff were also subject to ecclesiastical law rather than civil. Sankore Madrasa, also called the University of Sankore or Sankore Masjid, is one of three ancient centers of learning located in Timbuktu, Mali. It's, it is believed to be established by Manza Musa, uh, though the Sankore Mosque itself was founded by an unknown female Malinke patron. The three mosques of Sankore are Sankore, Jinga Geber, and Sidi Yaya, com- comprising the University of Timbuktu. The madrasa went through multiple periods of patronage and renovation under both the Mali and Songhai empires until the Battle of Tandibi in 1591 led to it being looted. The University of Sankore has its roots in the Sankore Mosque, which was built in 988 AD with the financial backing of this Malinke woman. It was later restored between 1578 and 1582 AD by Imam al-Aqib ibn Mahmud ibn Umar, the chief qadi of Timbuktu. Imam al-Aqib demolished the sanctuary and had it rebuilt with the dimensions of the Kaaba and Mecca. Sankore University prospered and became a very significant point of learning in the Muslim world, especially under the reigns of Mansa Musa and Askia Muhammad I. 
So the two oldest universities in Africa were both founded by women. I know that's right. Chapter five, African philosophies. Philosophy is defined as the systemized study of general and fundamental questions, such as those about existence, reason, knowledge, values, mind, and language. The word comes from the Greek word philosophia, which means love of wisdom. And when people think of philosophy, Greek philosophers like Socrates and Plato or Germans like Friedrich Nietzsche or Immanuel Kant come to mind. Rarely in one's mainstream study of philosophy are philosophy are African philosophers mentioned, and when they are, they're usually post-colonial philosophers whose work generally centers around the African mindset after centuries of colonization and or slavery. This is fine, but it is important to know and understand pre-colonial African philosophy as well so that people don't mistakenly believe that Africans had no philosophical frameworks before European interaction. And by people... I mean black people. If other people come to understand these things, that's great. But my content is primarily made to educate and enlighten and entertain black people. Us knowing ourselves is my primary concern and focus. So we're clear. Barima, Magzera, Dimba, Zola Fall. I know I didn't say that right, but I'm doing my best. He's more commonly known as Kok Barmafal. And he was a West African philosopher from the Kaor kingdom, which was one of the kingdoms that arose from the split of the Jalaf Empire and present-day Senegal and Gambia. He was a member of the Lamane class. Lamane means master of the land in the Mendinge, Wolof, and Serer languages. And the Lamanes were chieftains, kings, and founders of cities throughout the region. Lamane families exercised immense power and made up the bulk of the landowning class, and their economic and political power was intricately linked to Sarah custom, history, and religion. As such, they were as powerful as kings and could even dethrone a king if their power was threatened. Kokbarmafal is considered to be the greatest Senegalese thinker and philosopher. He was a master of wordplay, and his metaphors are still commonly used in Wolof today. He criticized his class and the Damels of his day through clever use of metaphor and parable. The Damel was the title of the ruler of Kaor. In the Senegalese film Gelwar, directed by Ousmane Sembene, the titular character of Gelwar recites one of Kar- Barmafal's proverbs. Gelwar is addressing a crowd of Senegalese people who are celebrating the food aid they've been given by European missionaries. The people are on the streets and the Europeans, as well as a few of Senegal's elites, are above them on a dais looking out in smug self-satisfaction. Gelwar goes up on the dais and voices his disgust and shame at seeing his people begging and prostrating themselves to the Europeans. He reminds them of their African honor and dignity and says, Our ancestor Kokbarma said, if you want to kill a proud man, give him what he needs to live every day. In the long run, you've made him a serf. After his riveting speech, the crowd refuses to accept the food aid, upsetting the Europeans and the country's elites who had planned to hoard all the food aid and then sell it at exorbitant prices. Historian David Murphy states that Kok Barma's words and acts have passed into Senegalese folklore to such an extent that proverbs are often introduced by the phrase Kok Barma said whether this is true or not. In East Africa, the philosopher Zara Jacob lived in the city of Aksum in the 17th century. He wrote a treatise in the classical Gies language called the Hatata, or the Inquiry, in 1667, and has been compared to René Descartes' Discours de la Method, which was published in 1637. Around 1510, Abba Mikhail 
A deacon in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church translated and adapted the Book of the Wise Philosophers, a collection of sayings from the early Greek pre-Socratics, Plato and Aristotle, from Arabic to Guise. Zara Jacobs Hatata goes further than these former texts as he argues in favor of following one's natural reasoning instead of believing what one is told by others. Jacob was a contemporary of the female Orthodox Saint Walata Petros, whose biography was written in 1672. Jacob lived during the time when the Aksumite Emperor Susianos I was forcibly trying to convert Ethiopians to Roman Catholicism because he had come under the influence of a Portuguese priest. And I talk about that in detail in episode 5-5 of my History of Christianity series. Refusing to adopt the Catholic faith, Jacob fled into exile with some gold in the Book of Psalms. On the road to Shewa in the south, he found a cave at the foot of the Tekeze River and lived in it as a hermit for two years, praying and developing his personal philosophy. He wrote of his experience, I have learned more while living alone in a cave than when I was living with scholars. What I wrote in this book is very little, but in my cave, I have meditated on many other such things. After the death of Cisienos and the ascension of his son, Fasiletes, who was a fervent Orthodox Christian, Jacob left his cave and settled in the town of Imfra. He found a patron, a rich merchant named Hapta Ixgazbir. Yeah, and he married a maid of the family. Although devoutly religious and focused on religious study, Zara refused to live as a monk and stated that the law of Christians, which propounds the superiority of monastic life over marriage is false and can't come from God. He also rejected polygamy because the law of creation orders one man to marry one woman. Jacob became a teacher, most notably to Walda Haywatt. Walda Haywatt was the person who convinced Zara Jacob to write his 1667 treatise investigating the light of reason. Jacob is most noted for his ethical philosophy surrounding the principle of harmony. He proposed that an action's morality is decided by whether or not it advances or degrades the overall harmony of the world. While Jacob was a member of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, he was what some might call a theist in that he did believe in God, but did not dogmatically adhere to any particular set of religious beliefs. And his aversion to Sisyenos Roman Catholic policy largely stemmed from the fact that it required the Ethiopians to reject their own culture in favor of European practices. Rather than deriving his beliefs about the world from any organized religion, Jacob sought the truth in observing the natural world. In Hatata, Jacob proposed a cosmological argument in chapter three. If I say that my father and mother created me, then I must search for the creator of my parents and of the parents of my parents until they arrive at the first, who were not created as we are, but came into this world in some other way without being generated. However, he asserted that the knowability of God is not dependent upon human intellect, but our soul has the power of having the concept of God and of seeing him mentally. God did not give this power purposely. He gave the, as he gave the power, so did he give the reality. He also argued against discrimination in chapter six of Hatata, starting the chapter with all men are equal in the presence of God and all are intelligent since they are his creatures. He did not assign one people for life, another for death one for mercy, another for judgment. Our reason teaches us that this sort of discrimination cannot exist. In chapter five of Hatata, he criticizes the religious argument for slavery, saying what the gospel says on this subject cannot come from God. Likewise, the Mohammedans said that it is right to go and buy a man as if he were an animal. 
But with our intelligence, we understand that this Mohammedan law cannot come from the creator, the man who made us equal, like brothers, so that we call our creator our father. This was controversial because slavery was widely practiced in Ethiopia at this time. But Jakob cleverly ties the belief in slavery to Muslims because he knew that Orthodox Ethiopians would not like that comparison. Jakob's protege, Walda Haywood, began as his student. He was the son of Jakob's patron and continued Jakob's work with his treatise of Walda Haywood, which was also written in Gies. Haywood took his mentor's work and expanded upon it, turning it into a more practical guide. He applied his own sense of reason to the questions of the day, largely following his mentor's lead, but Haywood also sought to edify the larger community. He stated that he wrote his treatise so that all the children of Ethiopia grow in knowledge and be counseled. Haywood's text is not ostensibly religious, although he makes references to God. While he is an Orthodox Christian, he never mentions Jesus. His references to God could fit for Christians, Jews, and Muslims alike, which he does intentionally because Ethiopia during his time period was a country that had all three faiths represented. Walter Haywood explained that there are some religious tenets of the, the truth of which are impossible to know. What Haywood set out to present was a systematic exploration of human nature based entirely on reason. Haywood stressed the virtue of patience above other emotional practices. As for what were often regarded as the seven deadly sins, Haywood took a more practical psychological approach. He emphasized the negative real-life consequences of anger, pride, and greed, rather than stressing a sense of their immorality. On anger, Haywood wrote that controlling an emotion was important as anger extinguishes prudence. Anger must be countered with humility, lest you act with injustice or violence. Pride could also be countered with humility. Haywood advised people not to try and excel above others or be overly concerned with what others thought. Doing so can destroy your peace of mind and create jealousy in others. On the topic of greed, Haywood agrees that it was doubly counterproductive. One suffers from focusing on one what does on what one doesn't have and finds what one does have inadequate. On the other hand, he doesn't advocate fasting or religious or consciously cultivating poverty, poverty as a religious exercise. Haywood thought it was healthy to enjoy your possessions and the pleasures of life as long as you did not seek more than you needed. Walter Haywood believed that it is only lack of understanding that prevents us from seeing that all people are created with wisdom and the possibility of good. He believed that apparent punishment in life is not divinely directed because of a lack of worthiness. Instead, he argued it was a natural consequence of individual actions, putting an emphasis then on personal responsibility. When having wronged another, Haywood advised going to that person immediately to heal that rift. His mantra was to offer consolation to the distress to, and kindness to everyone. In a particularly lovely passage, he wrote, Mutual love embellishes man's entire life. It makes our afflictions easier to bear. It adds flavor and sweetness to our whole life. He also believed that work and cooperation are right and proper because they're essential for survival and a comfortable coexistence. He argued that God created both the rich and poor, those with strength and those who are weak, to foster such collaboration. And not only for that, but the mutual sharing of resources. But those who are willfully lazy should be allowed to suffer the natural consequences of their inaction. Haywood recommended against seeking a position of authority over others. All too often it resulted in hostility for those under your authority, with kindness and justice. Treat them as though they were your own children. Haywood rejected mindless religious orthodoxy of any kind. 
the arc that most people of whatever faith simply accept what their parents teach them as a true, be they Christian, Muslim, Jew, or Jew. But given that they're all taught differently, not all of what they are told can be true. It's then that Haywood offers a then and still today radical suggestion. Haywood stated that it may be the case that no faith is entirely true. Anything that is said or written in whatever place can be false if reason deems it to be. As such, inquiry, inquiry is the door to wisdom and reason is the key. His philosophy of tolerance applied even when traveling to other cultures, and Haywood suggested that what is right in one culture may be wrong in another. Accordingly, he advised that while you should abide by the customs of your own culture when at home, but if traveling, you should live according to local custom. Haywood argued that by refusing to observe the customs of the country you find yourself in, that you destroy charity and bring quarrels and evil speech upon you. Finally, Walda Haywood endorsed the ongoing pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. Do not become disheartened with having to go on learning and do not give it up during all your life. Do not ever say, I have learned a lot, I have enough knowledge. Even if you learn the teachings of all men, there are many things you don't know. In Southern Africa, Ubuntu is an Bantu term, meaning humanity. It is sometimes translated as I am because we are, or I am because you are, or humanity towards others. In Zosa, the latter term is used, but it is often meant in a more philosophical sense to mean the belief in a universal bond of sharing that connects all humanity. Although Ubuntu has been in existence in oral literature for thousands of years, it first appeared in South African written sources in the mid-19th century. Reported translations cover the semantic field of human nature, humanness, humanity, virtue, goodness, and kindness. Grammatically, the word combines the root into person, human being, with a class 14 ubu prefix forming abstract noun, so that the term is exactly parallel in formation to the abstract noun, humanity. The concept was popularized in terms of a philosophy or worldview as opposed to a quality attributed to an individual beginning in the 1950s, notably in the writings of Jordan Kushngubane, published in the African Drum Magazine. From the 1970s onward, the Ubuntu began, began to be described as a specific kind of African humanism based on the context of Africanization, which was being propagated by the political thinkers beginning in the 1960s period of decolonization, Ubuntu was used as a term for a specifically Southern African kind of humanism found in the context of the transition to majority rule in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Ubuntu has always had multiple applications in education. Ubuntu has been used to guide and promote African education and to decolonize it from Western educational philosophies. Ubuntu education uses the family, community, society, environment, and spirituality as sources of knowledge, but also as teaching and learning media. The essence of education is family, community, societal, and environmental well-being. Ubuntu education is about learners becoming critical about their social conditions. Interaction, participation, recognition, respect, and inclusion are important aspects of Ubuntu education. Methods of teaching and learning include groups and community approaches. The objectives, content, methodology, and outcomes of education are shaped by Ubuntu. In social work and community building, Ubuntu refers to Afrocentric ways of providing a social safety net to vulnerable members of society. Common elements include collectivist thinking. The approach helps to validate worldview and traditions suppressed by the Western Eurocentric cultural hegemony. It is against materialism and individualism and it looks at an individual person holistically. 
The social interventions done by social workers, welfare workers, and development workers should strengthen, not weaken families, community, society, and the environment and people's spirituality. These are the five pillars of Ubuntu intervention, family, community, society, environment, and spirituality. As a moral philosophy, Ubuntu believes that actions are right, roughly insofar as they are a matter of living harmoniously with others or honoring communal relationships. One's ultimate goal should to be become a full person, a real self, or a genuine human being. Ukama, i.e. relationships, are important. Among the Shona people, for example, when a person dies, his or her property is shared amongst relatives, and there are culturally approved ways of doing this, and this practice is called kuvo, kugova. Stan Lake J.W.T. Semkange, the Zimbabwean historiographer, educationalist, journalist, and author, wrote extensively on Ubuntu's maxims on morality. He stated that if and when one is faced with a decision, decisive choice between wealth and the preservation of life of another human being, then one should opt for the preservation of life. Ubuntu is also used to guide research objectives, ethics, and methodology. Using the Ubuntu research uh, approach provides researchers with an African-oriented tool that decolonizes research agenda and methodology. The objectives of Ubuntu research are to empower families, communities, and society at large. In doing Ubuntu research, the position of the researcher is important because it helps create research relationships. The agenda of the research belongs to the community and true participation is highly valued. Ujama is valued, meaning pulling together or collaboration. So there you have folks, a by no means exhaustive uh, history of pre-colonial African philosophies and centers of learning from across the continent. I hope that this uh, episode encourages all of us to decolonize our modes of thinking and expand our knowledge of self. Next episode, I'll be discussing pre-colonial African interactions with the wider world, not just Europe, and also the idea of Africa as either a dark continent or did we, as Dr. Chik Antadiyap asserted, come before Columbus? Join me next time for more Musings on History.